0: Seems like a very natural storyteller.
1: Shy, retiring person, just really timid.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I didn't get that at all upstairs.
1: It's gonna be a half hour of silence. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be so awkward. Oh no,
0: you're, you're already doing great because we're already recording. So.
1: Oh great, sneak attack.
0: <laughs> I always do that. I hate saying, okay, we're going to start in three, two, one, because then everybody gives me this blank expression of like, what?
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: Um, Anna, first off, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, joining us. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting your husband recently. Um, What Four weeks now we've known each other, something like that. We have Grant in the room with us as well. And uh, he actually came on and did a episode... Uh, last week with me and he was like you have to meet my wife (laughs) he that man loves you and I can tell because he talks about you and talks you up and he didn't like his talking up of you was right on because I can already tell you're a genuine soul just like he is you're salt of the earth person thank you and he was explaining all these things about you to me and I was like man this lady has lived a life.
1: I'm on my third or fourth one. You know? <laughs> Seriously. And I, th- there's still some adventure left in me. I don't think it's... It doesn't have to end when you're 64 or 65 or whatever. Um, I still kind of project and think about the future like, oh, because that's how I've always lived, 300 years or so in the future. And I look back. So, or as if I'm looking back from 300 years, would it be cool to, let's say, hook up with that first husband of mine who with the 48-year age difference who was a world-class poet. Yeah, that would be really cool. Fast forward after I left, uh, after 13 years with him, wonderful years, but still the age difference got to us. And it was like, well, what if I got into freestyle wrestling? Wouldn't that be cool to look back on? Yeah, okay. So I got, <laughs> guess by happenstance got into freestyle wrestling. Wow. Um, which was in my 30s, which is insane.
0: Yeah. And I, I like the way you kind of put that is like it's you. There's always adventure to be had always. no matter what age you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you had sent me a little kind of uh, introduction on yourself. So you're from Canada.
1: Yep. Nova Scotia originally.
0: And Nova Scotia, when you were growing up, there was a small town. 100 and
1: about 150 people, um, not counting the rabbit hounds. Um, very little livestock left. It was a dying village, basically. You had the older people and you had a few of the younger ones coming up. But even in one generation, like my niece, she can understand Acadian French, but I don't think she speaks it at all. I've never heard her say one word. So I grew up with my grandparents sort of right near, like just down the road. And um, because of that it was like a conduit straight to living in the early 1930s so even though i was born in 1959 if the power went out we'd put the kerosene lamps up um there was a wood burning stove and we weren't going back to the country we never left it <laughs> you yeah know what i mean it was like a wood burning stove we had no telephone until 1980 81 because my mother didn't want to be on the party, uh, the party lines where people could hear and listen in on the conversations. So only when the private lines came through, that she agreed that yeah we'd have a phone. So that was about 1980.
0: Wow, that is that's amazing. Like mm-hmm. I think about like the life that you lived as a child coming up in a town of a, like you said like 150, 150. so people. And then I think about my childhood and the, those are on different planes, you know, like completely, completely. um, as a kid growing up in a town of 150 people, how many other children were around?
1: There was my brother and his, um, three friends, three brothers were his friends. And there was David, Raymond, Donald Lloyd, who was younger. They had a little sister, Linda. She was blonde. And then the girls my age lived about a mile or two down the road, and that was too far away. So it was me, basically. And I was usually the object of fun, quote, unquote, fun. It was like, let's play hide-and-seek. You're it. Okay, count to a (laughs) 1,000. And I would. (laughs) And then I'd look across the field way down there, and they would be on their bicycles on the railroad tracks.
0: Oh, my. Not
1: in the yard, you know. It was that kind of thing.
0: Did you um, have a schoolhouse in Nova Scotia, or did you, or were you homeschooled, or how did that work with that small of a population?
1: Nobody was homeschooled. in, Like in my parents' generation, if, let's say, a parent died, and they usually had very large families because they were Catholics, all Acadian French Catholics. So in my parents' generation, if the parents died or the Spanish flu carried them off, or they all, you know, they would sometimes quit school and just go to work, you know, just kind of help out what they could and to kind of teach themselves how to read and write on their own. But in my coming up, there was a schoolhouse in the middle of the village, and I went to the last event that was held there. So you had your, your blackboard, your kerosene stove in the middle, uh, the little desks, and people had been using slates, slates to write on, like real tablets. Wow. <laughs> but that My father still had his slate from when he was a kid. And uh, it was some kind of a bake sale. It was a little fundraising event, but you still had the cursive script lined up on top of the blackboard, the kerosene stove, the two separate entrances for boys and girls. Um, But it was not used as a school when I was coming up. They invented the consolidated school. So I almost went to the nuns. It was like a little convent school, two rooms, almost went to that. But then they made a mistake. No, you're going to the big school. So I had the same bus driver from grade zero to grade 12. (laughs) He had a toupee because the hair never, the hairline never changed from under his driver's cap. And, um, so yeah, the same exact school building. And now they've sold it. It's a fish freezer. (laughs) Really? (laughs) It's used to store fish.
0: How long were you on the bus, uh, in order to get to your school?
1: It was about two miles.
0: Oh, so not, not too bad. Not too bad, no. I hear often sometimes people like in the rural areas can be on buses for 45 minutes to two hours. And then
1: other kids were, yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's, you know, that's awesome. When, um, you spent your whole youth there.
1: Yep. Every, yeah, the whole time. And then a miracle happened. First of all, the Vietnam war, that was one thing because you had draft dodgers who came over. So up until that point it had been very isolated The only, there was one radio station, CJLS, and it played mostly classical country. You know, Rob Wills and the Playboys and stuff like that, Porter Wagner. Um, You could catch Boston at night sometimes. Um, And that had different, more like rock and roll stuff. Um, And one day, where, where was, wait now. There was that one little radio station. Did I lose my train of thought? No me, Grant. You're supposed to know where I was. <laughs> um, but we were all in the same little, little place. And the, oh yes, the Vietnam War happened. So when the draft dodgers came over, they brought, you know, the Grateful Dead or whoever all was, it was a whole different psychedelic. And they would kind of go and live in little places along the coast, kind of hidden away. But they changed the ethos of people who were old enough to be able to drive and go out and party and stuff. So they interacted a little bit, and it kind of hastened or accelerated the pace of life and broadened the the horizons quite a bit. And then there was this family. I was 14 or 15, I think, and they lived in Cohasset, just south of Boston. But the man, his dad had been an Acadian, also French Catholic, from down home. And so he had married and had two little girls, and he wanted them to know about their Acadian origins and his dad had died in Sicily in World War II so he never met his father never had even met him but he knew that he had family so he came one summer with his wife and the two little girls and we met because he asked my brother who was pumping gas at the local Texaco um, how to get to Wedgeport or whichever the village so we met and I got along with the two little girls and he said you know how about next summer would you come and live with us and, like, be the live-in babysitter. Okay. Like, I <laughs> didn't hesitate, right? So here, lo and behold, from this little 150-people village with tar, like, there wasn't even any asphalt on the road. It was still tar. And um, they'd spray that every, every summer. And so from this little tiny village, no phone, wood-burning stove, I'm in this beautiful house on Jerusalem Road in Cohasset. Down the road, there's the Dow Jones mansion. Oh my word. So it was like catapulted into this whole other universe. of, and They trusted me to drive the car with their kids in it. I don't know how they did that.
0: And this was when you were 14? Uh,
1: four, 15. F- 14, the, 15? Yeah, the second what, summer.
0: What did your parents think of that? Were they supportive of it?
1: I think they were because I think I was kind of probably considered bright in those days and I think they wanted to give me some kind of an opportunity and my father's uncle Vincent who became a judge he was sent to Boston age 11 to learn English and then he became a lawyer and then he became a judge and he became um, the first Acadian judge on the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia and the first Acadian elected to the House of Commons in Ottawa so he had been sort of sent out you know at a young age to see the world and especially to learn English.
0: And so it's kind of like you so as well. bit. was English, is that not your first native no. language? No. So it's French or well. what? It, I, I know nothing about the languages up there in Canada, other than there are quite a few, right?
1: This is a world premiere on your channel, on your podcast, <laughs> Acadian French from Southwestern Nova Scotia. Um, so si que je me to à parler comme personne ça ferait manière comme ça, but l'affaire est j'ai much de chance to pratiquer, so des fois faut que je in, faut que j'invente stuff, well pas really it, but um, j'ai jamais la chance de me pratiquer, jamais parce qu'il n'y a personne around. que ma ma mère est encore callé, so elle comme elle, comme à des, à, des, à des histoires le gossip dans le village et tout ça et moi j'étais là comme Oh, mm, mm. oh, eh, oh, eh. So I wouldn't practice because she would be filling me in on the village gossip. And I'd be hearing her accent and her cadence and her voice. And I figured out, this is again, this is a first. So there's a village called pubnico There are about a thousand people. They're fishermen. And they have a way of saying, which means he gave me a kais, which means he said hello to me. Fast forward, when I went to travel in Europe and I was in the Basque country and I stayed in Mondragon near Pamplona for three weeks, lived with this family, kaisho, kaisho was how they said hello. Basque fishermen across the Atlantic probably yelled off the boat, Caisho, Caixo. And that's how people from Pubnico probably picked up on imabaye he gave me in kais. He gave me a kais which is probably from the Basque word for hello. Wow. That's my theory.
0: Hey, let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for, you're 14, 15. 14, you're... 15,
1: I end up in Boston and, um, or Cohasset, and I had one day off a week, and it was really light duty, like make lunch, and that was the first time I discovered potato chips with sandwiches. It was so American. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. And grilled cheese, ooh, I could make grilled cheese. And I had my own room, and they had a little tiny pony with a little cart. So I'd fix up the little pony, and I'd put the kids in the back, and off we'd go down to the beach or down to the shore. And I, again, I don't know how they trusted me. I don't know. Those girls, I don't know. They were very, they were too young to be afraid. Mm-hmm. I was afraid, though. Like cars, and sometimes the horse would buck, and he'd like almost step out of his traces and everything. But, uh, and then driving with the big, huge Labrador dog and the two girls in a station wagon.
0: Oh yeah. Right. So you went from small village to larger city driving,
1: very wealthy neighborhood,
0: babysitting, babysitting. all of this yep. at this time that you're kind of experiencing this whole new chapter in your life. Are you, uh, studying anything or are you finding things out about yourself? Cause obviously you're a painter you're a writer where did mm-hmm. all these aspirations start to come from
1: i always wanted to be a writer that was my first love it was it was um oh life-altering moment i was about and i write about it in my my memoir good is gone um there had been near yarmouth because you remember canada was part of the british commonwealth so we when i was born like we still flew under the union jack we had no canadian flag it was still part of oh, the wow. british commonwealth And uh, so there was the Royal Air Force were shipped over to train, the pilots were shipped over to be able to train and learn how to fly a plane without fear of being bombed. So there were barracks, there were East Camp and West Camp near the Yarmouth Airport in the woods, and they were all British airmen. There was another such camp, I believe in Winnipeg, and Richard Burton trained there. Small fact, but anyway, weird fact. And so back in the time when men still wore white shirts on Sunday um, and you didn't work, like do not pick up an ax on Sunday. Don't chop wood on Sunday. It's you know the day of rest. And we would go driving around. So this was before my grandmother died. So she died in 68. This must probably was 65. I was about four. Let me, uh, let me put it this way. My mother could still hold me on her lap. That's how little I was. So we go to these barracks, and by now all the windows are broken out. We go into what had been the mess hall, and some motorcycle had come in and burned donuts on the wooden floor. The piano was smashed in the corner. Um, Everything was smashed. It was kind of hollowed out. There was nothing really left. And we trooped through. There was my dad, my grandfather, my grandmother, mom, me, and my brother. Trooping, we're just poking around. We go through the kitchen. There was a huge freezer huge walk-in freezer with a rusted door hanging open. And above the sink, on the windowsill, I think, what is it, Stanley Kubrick's movie, there was a teacup, blue and white teacup and a saucer. And I saw this teacup and this saucer that had survived. And I had a sense that there had been men, young men, filling this barracks, and now they were probably all dead, or some of them had left, To go to d-day and probably died or we're now in very advanced age and it affected me it altered my dna this awareness of time uh that whole dimension of time the finality oblivion um death the choices that you make they can be fatal or they can be wonderful and here were these young men and now they're gone and there's emptiness here there's you know, detritus. Of the The garage was still there, where their trucks and things, the jeeps, had been worked on and everything. But this little delicate teacup was still there, and it just affected me so that later that night we're back all piled in the kitchen, as per, you know, just gather around the kitchen. And um, I couldn't sleep. I was agitated, like nobody's business, so much that my mother, who prided herself once the kids were in bed. They stayed till the next morning. That was one of her, you know, tenants' Hard past rules. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were raised by hand. And uh, so I was so agitated that she actually went to the bedroom and picked me up and brought me back to the kitchen and sat me on her lap. And I remember hearing her say, oh, she just got too much excitement. She's got a little excite. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Like, how do you not know? How do you not respond to the fact that we were in this barracks where these British airmen had been a few years ago, like in the, this was now the early 60s, they would have been there in the 40s, um, and now they're all dead, and there's this big divide between life and death and the passage of time and oblivion, and you're not picking up, you guys are just not picking up, and if you're not my enemies, y'all are not my friends, because I'm different, I'm different. Whatever I am, I'm different. Mm -hmm. There's a divide here. And that kind of set me on this whole path of wanting to write or do art at the very least, because that's a way to preserve time. You capture it or you pole vault over death. If you can preserve something, frame it, frame the harness the energy of a thing, an image, a thought, put it in such a way, whether it's through words paint colors um photographs if you harness it and capture it that energy will bounce back to the viewer forever and ever if it's done right if you have talent if you really really do it right so that energy bouncing back to the viewer and lasting outlasting death or outsmarting death that was my thing that just became my what i wanted to do
0: yeah i I love that you use that story to express that i am uh very much the same way there there are times I'll go places with friends of mine and we'll go to like old dilapidated buildings or museums and they're just like mm. and I I just find myself also connecting with the smallest little things like a, a watch and then I think about where did this watch go whose watch was it you know and I'll also always find myself looking at old photographs um there's an antique store down in salt lake city uh called the Antique spa and they have right. um these just sections of old photos and i will sit there and just go through all these old photos and try and like yeah. connect with that person's story just based off the photo and yeah. i i think you're absolutely right that some people just get that and other people just don't understand it
1: either they either they don't understand it or they can't allow themselves to open that door They just want to stay on the straight and narrow and like, I got a job to do. I got to pay the mortgage and that's it. And it's so sad. There's so much else to life. Really?
0: No, I was just thinking about that today. I've been uh, really going down the rabbit hole of um, the into the wild story. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. The McCandless. Yep. Yep. And I'm just like, man, he had it figured out. We are so captured in this society of technology and careers and work and blah 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 Mm -hmm. and he was just more so connected with adventure and making your life a story and not this reoccurring Monday through Sunday thing right and I think it's getting worse and worse and worse as we technologically progress we're getting caught up in other people's stories just watching their phones and this and that but we don't experience it ourselves yeah so you figured out you wanted to be a writer at a very young age. That's a very young age that mm-hmm. um, that clicked for you. And then here you are now in this larger city. So where does the story go from here?
1: That was, oh gosh, Um how much time have we got? We've got <laughs> no. as much time
0: as you as you need. I got a 128 gig memory card in here. We're good. <laughs>
1: That'll work. That'll work. Um, no, I mean, I went through life. I didn't mind being growing up in that little village. I, I think it was a very special place. And there was like a few land features. There was a drumlin like the from the ice age so you had a few hills and then we had a saltwater lake which was the same salinity as your eyes and your mucous membranes so you could swim with your eyes wide open it was magical Magical. hang on
0: is that what affects the reasons you can't do that Mm -hmm. i had no idea
1: it'll burn if it's too salty it'll burn now the great salt lake is something like 21 percent salinity the atlantic ocean is about three percent wow and the atlantic ocean will burn your eyes and if you jump headfirst into a freshwater lake, that it's that exchange of the salt, either bursting through the cell membranes and trying to get out, or the water trying to get into your cell membranes. One of because osmosis.
0: That's that's awesome. I totally took us off track real quick, but I was like, <laughs> I learned something new today. Yeah. I try to aim every day to learn something, and that is. Never would have known that.
1: There you go. (laughs) And and you had these little drumlins and there were like these um, hollowed out. I like to call them to me. They were like tooth sockets. It was the cellar of a house that no longer existed on the side of this little hill behind the railroad tracks. Like I, I used to walk down there and just zone around and just go. And there would be these little stone cellars, little foundations. And it was like a socket in a jaw. And there was no life left, but you could see the lilac bush and you could see the apple tree that the young woman would have planted when they first got married and built their little house.
0: You you truly are like a writer, like the way you describe things and like the analogies you use for them is amazing. Like because I just when you said that it clicked in my head 100 percent like, oh, I know exactly. And you you have an ability that not a lot of people have to create an image for the person listening to your story. So well, I just had to jump in and say, dude, you are really good at this.
1: (laughs) I think part, part of the reason for that is my mom was, um, we didn't always see eye to eye. And so and she was set in her ways. And I think there was a little bit of that jealousy thing. And she's passed away. I can kind of say whatever I want. So, um, and, and it's in my book, too. But we didn't always see eye to eye. And I think there was a lot of envy. Like when Dad would come home from a week away at work, I was about 10, 11, or whatever. And as soon as he'd walk into the back door, me and mom were like two like two pumas, like just ripping each other's throats out. And I figured out, age of 10, before I heard of Freud, well, oh, this is jealousy. Uh, she's got something going with him that I can't have. And he's, I've got something going with him that she can't have. The kind of affection and the daddy's little girl kind of thing, she can't have that. But I can't have what whatever it is that married people do. That's off limits, I guess. And so... In order to try to communicate with her I had to be like a blacksmith I had to have an anvil and I had to heat up the 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 whatever I was trying to bend into shape and express and I had to craft it and polish it and wait till the squirrel pelts were the certain way and the wind was blowing in the right direction and to ask can I go to the dance and then it was like no you know it was like that kind of thing so I would have to craft my words and try to shape them so that and, and what I was trying to ask or what I wanted so that it wouldn't cause offense so that there wouldn't be another freaking row and I think that's where I learned right off the bat like crafting language edit 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 before it comes out <laughs> do 50 edits before it comes out your mouth and so I just I still have that knack I think that's where I learned it
0: that, that's super cool that's I My hat's off to you there because I wish I could communicate in that way because it's just, it's almost like very soothing as well. As odd as that sounds, I'm like, I can just sit here and listen to you go on and on and on. And it's like, you're making a visual representation very easy for me to see. Right. So, um, you're, you're doing the babysitting, you're living in this larger city, you kind of miss home every now and then or
1: it was like you've heard the story the prodigal son like the pious daughter and i remember writing letters home and i would i went one day a week i would get on the ferry with the, the the man of the house and he would bring me into boston he had an office on the 31st floor of the prudential build no not the prudential the black one with the little black cube on top he had that an office in there whole floor and he would have a suit my dad never wore suits like that you know a vest and he had a mercedes and he had you know and then plus the beat-up station wagon for the wife and kids and he would take me in under his wing and there was like a revolving door wow city stuff escalator Whoa. elevators Whoa. and i was all everything was fascinating to me everything and he bless his heart he would draw i still have the little pink slips of paper he would draw the street boston commons you're here old north church here the museum here, and I would walk around all day and then come back. And I remember coming off the, the parking garage, again, not heard of down home, who had parking garages. There was this huge parking garage. And we come off, and there was a sign that said, Boycott Grapes. And I'm like, what's anybody got against grapes?
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It
1: was Cesar Chavez. And that whole movement, that whole labor movement for justice for immigrant workers. Gotcha. That was that whole thing. And I, did, I was so naive. I What did I know? I didn't know anything about that. But I still remember the sign, Boycott Grapes. And then one day, I'm in the Boston Commons. I'm sitting there in little swan boats, and I'm watching. And Buddy comes up, do you want to buy some dope? No. No. I was like mortified, like no. And there were like wood chips around the trees in the park. And I got a whiff of pine, you know, cedar pine, and it reminded me of home. Oh, gosh. Oh, God. Yeah, the homesickness would hit. Um, And then I would write a letter and I would craft these letters like dutiful daughter, missing home. You know, I would put it in so many words like so that they would know that I hadn't forgotten about them and um, that I still valued where I was from and that was missing Belleville, you know. And uh, one day I wandered into, I stumbled into the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And I see these massive tableaus, you know, like the old school, old masters. And then I went, I ended up in the modern part. And I think it was Lewis, Louis Mo, Lewis Morris, Morris Lewis. It was a big, huge canvas, like 12 by, you know, 15 feet. And you had just a few drips of mint green in the corner. And it made me mad. It was like, this is an insult. How does this person think this is art? (laughs) It's got to have, like, Napoleon on it, or it's got to have, like, a sailing ship, or it's got to have robes, you know? Like, And um, years later, I realized, you know, that's the only painting that stuck with me. That irritating modern art with a blank canvas was just a bit of mint green. And I ran across some more of his work. Last time, I think I was in New York City. I went to a museum. Um, was it New York or was it Chicago? Anyway, and oh, that's who that was. There's some more. Oh, I get it now. I get it now. And it just stayed with me. So that kind of got me thinking. And then fast forward, I still wanted to ride. I went to Dalhousie University. Oh, and because of this other life-altering thing, five years old, car accident, major wreck, fatal drunk driver. He, we T-boned him. He was doing 90 and he was dead drunk, 23 years old. He lost control on some gravel, and we were doing 45, he was doing 90, so it was a pretty big hit. And in those days, the cars didn't have seatbelts. This was 64, so 65, Yeah, you're in
0: big, huge steel boats on the road.
1: Brand new Impella, three weeks old, white Impella with a red interior, and he had one of those two-tone cars, big thing, heavy thing. He apparently, there was not one bone left unbroken. His skin wasn't broken, but his bones were shattered. He was ejected and face down in the gravel. And my mom had said something. And I was like, you know, monkeying on top of the back of the, I was in the back seat. So I was up in my face between their faces. And she said something. What she had said to dad was, are we going to make it? And I said, "What? what? And she said, never mind, just never mind, lay down on the back seat. And for some reason, I listened for once, and then we hit. So I had just lain down, which the, with the force of impact, I was thrown underneath the front seat. And all I had was a friction burn on my left cheek, that's it. Buddy was dead, my mother's leg was shattered, her pelvis was shattered, shattered in three places, her whole leg, her ankle shattered. And she went through the windshield, so her forehead was scalped, and her face was like livid red, all blood. Dad's sternum was broken. His shin was scraped to the bone on the brake release handle. His fists went through the dashboard. Um, He had glass in his head for three weeks because it wasn't safety glass in those days. So I'm like, oh, okay. And in slow motion, there's glass coming towards my face. I see a pulley, which I guess was the engine thing to hold the engine. Pulley, slow motion, slow motion. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So I stick my arm out, and I'm moving my arm up and down because nobody knew where I was. And this was in front of a store with a parking lot, so everybody thought I was thrown and dead somewhere, like up a tree or something. And um, they couldn't find me. So I finally stuck my hat, my arm out and she's here. I can still remember. Aleiset, y Like, she's here. She's here. So a truck driver showed up. He had a big knife. They cut the seat open, and it was like a birth moment. It was like a Botticelli <laughs> birth moment. They cut the front seat in half and pulled me out. And lo and behold, there was nothing wrong with me. I had no broken bones, nothing. And I had just a little friction, but my cheek was already swelling. And um, so... I look and I see that guy face down in the gravel. that's different. Oh, I got to see that. They wouldn't let me go. Can you imagine? Wouldn't let me go see. And I looked down and there's my mom. Like she was half out of the car. She'd fallen. She was trying to go look for me, but uh, she just fell. And I saw them lift her into the back of a van. I thought she was dead. Nobody told me different. And then the RCMP in those days had the red surge. That's the
0: Royal Canadian Mounted
1: Police. Yep. He showed up with the big hat, like the big scout hat and the red surge, picks me up and they put me in a car with strangers. They wrapped me up in this huge navy blue blanket. And now I started to go into shock. Like I was like tr- body tremors. So the husband goes to the garage, comes back with a bag of chips. To this day, stress equals potato chips. Hence, if he'd brought back celery, I'd be very skinny. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he comes back with potato chips. So then the RCMP guy picks me up, and I'm, I'm eating the chips around the back. I'm bending my face so I can fit between the brim of his hat and his neck, and I'm eating chips uh, around the back of the Mountie's neck. And then we go to the hospital. Doctor comes in with a bunch of go- interns, and he starts shaking one limb after the other, and I'm like, Is wrong with these people? Like I might have an injured spleen. Not that I knew what a spleen was, but I'm like, you're shaking my limbs. How how dumb are you? But that sort of triggered the start. Well, maybe I'd like to be a doctor. Oh, maybe a nurse. Maybe a doctor. So that started that ball rolling, and it was like a life and death sort of brush with death.
0: That that's so interesting because I had a very similar experience where. And I totally understand what you're saying when slow motion people that Mm -hmm. haven't been in a very tragic or stressful situation. So I was uh, in my Mustang at the time and I made a left-hand turn in front of a Ford F-250 that was doing 55 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Damn near ripped my car in half. And I just, I remember seeing the headlights and then everything went like hyper slow, like, Mm -hmm. and then the hit and just obliterated my vehicle. I ended up going to the emergency room, all that, you know, but it also triggered me to be like, I want to go into medicine. So shortly thereafter, I went to uh, the EMT Academy to become an EMT.
1: Oh, wow. Cool.
0: So that that's interesting that we have that little
1: tragic
0: mm. car, car accident. And I, I came out messed up, but when the police showed up, they were like, where's the body? They wanted to know where I was like dead. And they're like, he's over there in the gravel, and I'm like, I'm over here.
1: <laughs> Very Trump. You, you, that leaves a mark. It does. Remember that, yeah.
0: I wish someone would have brought me chips, though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you don't. You'd be like me now. You'd be like morbidly obese. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that kind of triggered a thing, and then it was it quickly morphed into because my aunt Bernadette was a industrial nurse, so she would just go to the shipyards in Halifax and. Kind of be on duty in case somebody had their head which happened i guess elevator shaft came down oops so and i thought well that would be great because she's crocheting the whole night basically you know in case something bad happens mm-hmm. but i could travel if i became a nurse or a doctor i could travel and that was the motivating thing behind there um and when i was a little kid we had these drinking glasses and i'd be drinking the milk and it would say made in france and i'm like oh that's where i'm from france and so all my whole childhood france france you know we're french because we're different we're not like the english people in town we're from france and my language is my first language is a mixture of i'd say 17th century french mixed with english so because things were invented over time like a car got invented but when the acadians came to what is now nova scotia and the like four, almost 500 years ago, um, we still say goblet, like goblet. We still say plume, instead, like a feather, instead of a stylo, which is the standard French. We still say uh, pom instead of in balle. So, poem, la paume de la mon, mm-hmm. mon instead of mais. So, little pronunciation differences. And that always kind of fascinated me. And I always wanted to travel and go to France and see where I was from. And then, Um, so I'm at Dalhousie, wanted to be the next female Hemingway, um, met the poet Irving Layton and that was, um, and very much of an impetus to like really like grab life by the, by the elbows, Mm -hmm. go do, you know, so why I came back, I wrote my first poem, sent him a letter, came back, ended up with him. But fast forward at the end of 13 years, because of the huge age difference, um, he helped me to kind of leave him. It was like.
0: Let's talk about you know, that real quick for the listeners because we got a, a good version of this, <laughs> and I I want them to be able to understand. So Anna, um, ended up marrying the famous poet, Canadian poet Irving Layton, right? Um, and you met him through a university or through yep.
1: he came to. We studied him in high school. There was a one poem called "The Bull Calf." Because um, he'd, he'd gone to McDonald College, an agricultural college, because he could afford it back in the day, back in the '30s, and then he eventually went on to get his master's in political science. But he became, a, he created modern Canadian poetry. He's singular; you could single-handedly say, credit him with developing modern Canadian poetry, as opposed to the Victorian uh, mentality that was that Canada was riddled with at the time, and he came along. And he was able to use classical frameworks, classical kind of, you know, the classic uh, essayists, and digest the bloodiest century we've ever seen and put that digested observation of human nature, politics, society, history, everything, lay it on that classical framework with um, vernacular language, everyday language. And that was like so different, so modern. And, uh, so we studied,
0: and this, this is in the, the 80s, that would have
1: 70s been, no, way back then, because he was born in 1912.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You you right. guys have that huge, I got <laughs> huge. Age I got to get that in my brain. Your age gap was how many years?
1: 48 years,
0: 48 years, age difference. And you mm-hmm. met him from, I was 20, you were 20 and had put a poem on the stage that he was coming to give his talk or his presentation that, at, right?
1: That's right. right. Um, Because in high school, the teacher had said, controversial poet, and we studied the bull calf. we played, uh, and then he played us the song Suzanne by Leonard Cohen on this dusty turntable, and which we thought was really weird, like just funny, you know, odd music. And fast forward, I'm now at Dalhousie University, which is like an Ivy League sort of thing, but failing miserably, because I started out in pre-med the first two years. Oh, God, so bad, so bad. And then I switched to nursing. I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And travel. And travel. So it was like, I get, I'm now in my third year at Dow, and it's the first year of a four-year program. And the professor, the teacher lady comes in. Now, girls, what are vitamins? They help you grow, glow, and go. I'm <laughs> like, geez, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't this. But I stuck it out for a year and they put me on a six week practicum and the white dress, white uniform, white caps, white nylons, white shoes, little name tag. And uh, they put me with this post-op cardiac patient with a bloated abdomen. And I'm like, I can't take blood pressure. This is hard. I can't count and talk at the same time. This is hard. You know, he could die. So my my lesson care plans were the note that I got. These are very imaginatively written, but they're usually late. And basically, um, no, you're really not cut out for this, are you? And then they su- assign me to the neonatal unit. And I would just go and I'd like wake the baby up, like I'd pinch it, make it cry. And then I'd get to sit in a rocking chair and just pass the time. I would kind of do that. And then, yeah, this this poor lady, like she was on her third kid. And I'm like... I haven't even done the deed yet, and you expect me to, like, teach her about having, you know, taking care of a newborn? This is off. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I could observe people, but I didn't want to be interacting with them. I wanted to observe them from a distance. That's where the writer kicked in again. I wanted to be a writer more than anything. So I switched in my fourth year to Bachelor of English uh, Literature. And that's where I met this wonderful girlfriend called Joyce Rankin, and she said one day she comes up, "Oh, Irving Layton's coming to give a reading. We gotta go. We gotta see. Yeah, for sure." So I thought, well, I better go to the library at least familiarize myself because I certainly remembered the name, but I knew nothing about him, nothing. Um. So I go to the special collections, and there was like, to my astonishment, like six or more shelf feet of books by Irving Layton. So I reach out. There was a little white spine. I pull it out. I read the poem, Peacemonger, which was one of his Greek poems written while he would be spending summers in Greece. And it described a girl uh, bringing chilled wine and bringing cucumbers, and they're on the beach, and it's in Greece. And I'm like, wow, I want to be that girl. No, wait, I want to be better than that girl. I want to be with him, like, shoulder to shoulder. Because anybody who can take such simple language and evoke such tremendously descriptive evocative scenes that's a genius this is a genius and so i sat down and i wrote my first poem called i'm coming to leighton tonight and uh i showed it to joyce it's perfect you have to give it to him you have to show it to him are you crazy no i can't do that so we go to the big huge auditorium there on campus and we went early we bagged the first two seats and then she's like nudging me, you gotta go put it on the podium, you gotta go, gotta go. And I had typed it out to, you know, to be fair, or written it out. And I took a deep breath, I closed my eyes physically, went up on stage, like doing a night raid, you know, put it on the podium, come back, sit down, and then this usher comes out and he's ticked. What is this?
0: Yeah, he's like, what, what are you doing up there? What are you
1: doing up there? Like, what is that? Because it could have been something anti-Semitic, it could have been hate mail, it could have been something inappropriate you know because Irving was Jewish and very very prominent at the time I mean, he was at the top of his game and uh oh I said well it's just a welcome poem for Mr. Layton so he goes up rips it off the podium disappears backstage and then the MC, professor Andy Wainwright I still remember his name uh he introduced Irving and he said you know he's been published in 23 translated into 23 languages. He's published 42 43 books uh, a pretty much a book a year since 1945 or whatever it was and He's just been nominated for the Nobel Prize and he's just had a baby girl born last month uh, Little Samantha and here he is and so out comes his little guy short kind of punchy white silver hair long sort of silvery hair nougat colored velveteen suit little doggy and um so he comes up he puts his books on the podium and he takes out his glasses puts them on surveys the packed house and he pulls a paper piece of paper out of his pocket and he paused dramatically and he said only two or three times in my entire career has someone so graciously written me a poem and I would like to read it to all the gods and goddesses here tonight and he read my poem.
0: Was that just a moment where you were just like,
1: were you excited? Uh, Yeah, I I imploded and exploded at the same time, (laughs) just slid down in my seat and I was like, Joyce, oh fuck, oh fuck, fuck." basically that's all I could manage, you know. And he couldn't. Maybe he saw some agitation there in the front row, yay or nay, I don't know. But afterwards, Joyce had some of his books. She had already bought some of his books and she wanted his autograph. So we're hanging around the stage door. rupees but not really and um because she sincerely wanted his autograph and i'm like joyce what am i gonna say what no i'm just a student he's a genius this is one of the because now he given the reading now i had it confirmed this is one of the greatest poets in the english language since the beginning of time there's maybe five or six like him since the beginning of time like holy cow and so I have an essay. I have an essay test on short stories that I haven't written or haven't read yet tomorrow. I got to go study. I got to go read those stories. So I'm literally walking away. And the stage door opens. And he comes out. And Joyce gra- grabs my arm, yanks me back in front of him. Oh, Mr. Layton, Mr. Layton, hi. Um, I'd like you to meet Annette, who, oh, hello, hello. And he, sh- you know, shakes my hand. Uh. The Annette who wrote the poem, because that was my original name was mm-hmm. Annette, and oh, he said, "Well, that deserves a better handshake." So he thrusts his trench coat and his briefcase to Andy Wainwright, Professor Wainwright, <laughs> who now becomes valet, de facto valet, and he took my hand in his, in both of his hands, very warm hands, and we shook hands, and it was like that Sistine Chapel moment. Gzz, gzz, gzz. It was like an electric shock went through me. And um, he said, what are you doing now? Uh, And we'd already been told by the ushers. There's a reception upstairs, but it's invitation only. Riff-raff. Get Mm -hmm. away. Student riff-raff. Go away. Go away. Why don't you come up to my reception?
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) You must have been ecstatic.
1: Totally. So we go upstairs, and, and Professor Wainwright's carrying... Uh, i think his coat and i had the briefcase which was like the first of many times that i would carry his briefcase later on in life but uh now we get up there and he's mobbed by the halifax literary matrons the english department just mobbing him and there's like a table with rotgut like baby andre's baby duck rotgut wine so me and joyce are like putting back the little cups of wine And then I figure, well, look, the evening's winding down because I could see the pod. They're going towards the coat racks. Oh, shoot. Well, if I don't say something now, I'll never have this chance again. So I fixed him across the room, caught his eyes, Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea, the people just kind of parted ways. He comes directly towards me, takes my hand. What was your name again? And uh, what are you doing? And and, uh, so I said, well, I'm starting my BA in English, but it would take another three years. Finish that. You started it. I'll finish that. And then you'll have something to fall back on. And yeah, but I really want to go to Europe and write. Finish your degree first. Okay. And then Joyce pipes up and she gets the autograph and she says, if we write to you, would you answer? Oh, sure. Irving Layton, Niagara-on-the-Lake. And I'm like, holy cow. That guy doesn't need a post office box or a zip code. <laughs> So, um, we, and as we were leaving, cause then the, the evening did, that was it like about five minutes. That was it total. And plus having listened to him read and I, we're walking out of the auditorium and I turned to Joyce and I say, I've just met my first husband. And you I, knew and right the, then and then oh, I knew totally. Knew. I was about 12 feet tall. I floated. I, I wasn't touching the ground. I was about 12 feet tall. And then one of the people who'd been in the, we'd go to this little cafe for some cotton, you know, hot chocolate, whatever. And there was a feller in the cafe, it was quite late at night, he'd been to the reading. And Joyce was very burbly. You think, I'm a bulliet. She was burbly and sparkly. And she starts telling this guy what had just transpired. You'll never believe this, but Irving Leighton just read Anna's, you know, Annette's poem. He goes, I know, I was there. Oh, wow. So it was a full moon, crisp February night. It was freezing cold. And uh, going on midnight, and I'm like, he offers to walk us back to our apartments. I'm like, Matt, the night's too young. Let's go down to the waterfront. Come on. So we go, I, I bring them down Water Street, underneath the train tracks, through this tunnel, to the waterfront. And there's a Greek freighter, brand new Greek, the MV Zini. I can still see it. It had just docked. So I'm like, well, this is kismet, right? The poem that I read was Peacemonger set on a Greek beach. Lo and behold, here's this Greek freighter. Let's go on it. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't. No, 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 no. I start going up the gangplank. And they were just too scared, like, to stay down on the wharf. So they followed me up. And we spent the night on the ship. Oh, wow. Long story short. So the night I met Irving Leighton, I actually slept in Halifax Harbor on the Greek freighter. Long story short, but um, so I kept on traveling. I didn't listen to his advice. Um, I bought a plant. I planted trees for three weeks, and every tree, pine tree, pine seedling. Another ten minutes in France. I'm buying another ten minutes in France till my back gave out and I couldn't do it. And because of that car accident, I had an some kind of a money insurance thing that matured when I turned eighteen or whatever, or twenty, whatever it was. And my parents hadn't told me. They knew I was itching to leave and travel and go and do stupid things, you know. So they had taken the money and turned it back into the bank for three years without telling me. Well, I hit the roof. I raised the roof. And they had no choice but to go into their savings account, give me the money, with which I bought my first plane ticket to Paris. Wow. Yeah. And... um, So then I finally I traveled through and Irving had just published a book called Europe and Other Bad News and me 20 years old. You know, what did I know? And I was like, well, it's not that bad. It's not that bad because I wasn't picking up on evidence of the Holocaust or World War Two or um, Achille Lauro bombings or things like that that hadn't quite happened yet. So I'm like, I'm going to write him a letter. And I wrote him a letter from Athens And he wrote back. He actually wrote me back. And he said, you know, I, how did it go? I have to confess, I don't remember your face. Are you snub-nosed and freckled? Or are you classical Greek? And if we ever do get together, we'll share, over a bottle of wine, we'll share stories. And I'll tell you about my, you know, European experiences and you'll tell me yours. Fast forward, I come back a year later to Nova Scotia, back to my village. I don't have a B.A., I don't have a job. Um, I had worked in a waterfront bar in Naples, needed a root canal. The owner of the place paid for it. uh, And I told him I'd pay him back. So I ended up painting fences and houses in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia for that summer. And I scraped up the money, sent it back to Italy to pay the bar owners um, the debt that I owed. But I had nothing. And what was I going to do? Vocational school? hairdresser what no i was at a in a bad way i had no future really so i'm like oh let me write another letter to irving layton and by this time he was on the talk shows on national television about this horrific divorce that he was going through i mean harriet just stripped him she like skinned him alive and took everything and it made national news because he wrote a book about it and some of the poems were not very complimentary to harriet But bless her heart, she up and left with the little girl. So I wrote him a letter, and happenstance, on my birthday, he called, which he didn't know, and I hadn't gone down to the lake to go swimming. I'd stayed up at the house, answered the phone, and he's like, well, why don't you come and visit, be my guest, bring your portfolio, and we'll see what we can do. So September the 1st, I get on a plane from Halifax, I fly to Toronto, and... Took a shuttle bus down to Niagara on the lake. He picked me up and I became his house guest for a couple of weeks. A little bit of a stint, and tro- I worked in Toronto for about a month and then went back to visit him before having to look for another job. I inadvertently lost the one I had. And um, his housekeeper decided to up and leave because she could kind of see we were like a house on fire. We were getting along like, because when there was a 48 year age difference but when you have a 5000 year old soul and i have a five you know at least 2000 at least 3000 years old what's what's 48 years we were very very old souls and we just hit it off it sounds uh, unbelievable but we really did and was then,
0: was there any time during this that you thought he's just too old for me or were you that was just not on your radar at all
1: it was on the radar but on the very furthest periphery and there was a moment when there was this lady, uh, I won't mention her. She's passed away, too. Everybody's dead now. Um, but she had designs. She had designs. And um, he came to give a reading in Toronto where I was when I was working for this elderly lady. And I went to the reading like four hours early so I could sit right by the stage. And he didn't look at me throughout the whole. He must have known I was there. He must have known. But he didn't look at me and afterwards he was signing autographs and there was this lady dressed in a pink dress and she looked bored out of her skull. I'm almost going to say her name, but anyway, she was from Montreal and they, she had been a former student of his. She was probably, 20, how old would she have, she would have been in her late 50s, early 60s or something. Like she was a more appropriate age and she had known him for many, many years as friends and a little bit more at times, but mainly as friends. So she had come up from Montreal and he would go to Montreal and sometimes visit her. And he had written some poems about her and to her and stuff. And then she came to our house in Oakville, Ontario by the he, first it was Niagara. And then he moved to Oakville.
0: And this is in that time. You're still being like the,
1: I hadn't quite, it was November. So it was like September the 1st. I went to see him stay two weeks Got a little job in Toronto, lost the job early November. I go down first weekend of November to be here just to visit with him. And Mm -hmm. he was looking to move from Niagara on the lake to Oakville to be closer to his daughter. So he, because he still had visiting rights and he, it was a long drive from Niagara on the lake. So he was now looking to buy a house in Oakville. And I thought, okay, well, Yeah, I'll just go visit him and just, you know, talk and just catch up and stuff. And he said, why don't you come with me? We're going house hunting, him and this other lady friend of his, a real estate person. So, and he was looking for a house that would accommodate the housekeeper. She was a short story writer and an English teacher. And I witnessed that she would make a pot of soup that would last seven days. And he was doing the vacuuming and he was doing the dusting and he was going to get the mail because she was writing, and that was sacred. That was sa- Even though she was hired to be his housekeeper, anybody, as far as he was concerned, if you're trying to write, if you're sincerely trying to do something, he gave all of his support to her. So she'd be upstairs writing, he'd be vacuuming. Swear w- to God.
0: W- was this the uh, the girl in the pink dress? Is this the same no, lady? No, this is,
1: this is the housekeeper Oh, the housekeeper, okay. So the housekeeper lady, when I go back to visit him in November, mid-November she had left the housekeeper girl or lady left a note on the table and said um i'm looking at apartments they don't take pets can you look after my cat and he read the note and he looked at me and he said well looks like you're the new housekeeper and i said yep and in that fraction of a second it took me to answer i knew my whole life had changed yeah i was setting i was braiding my life to his like this was not going to be just playing house with a famous poet for three weeks. No, no, this is my. This is the course of my life because he's a genius and I want to braid my, I want to sublimate almost my identity but still stay very much myself but I want to be his helpmate in the harvest time of his career. And I want to learn from him because like I said, he's one of the <coughs> top poets in the English language ever since the beginning of time. That's how I assessed him and I think quite a few people agree with that. Others maybe not so much, but I that was my assessment. So I move in with him, and then we move. We stayed a year in Oakville. He was seeing this lady, and then he had a book coming out, The Gucci Bag, which was about the, divorce, the nasty divorce. Launch party. I didn't know how to do launch. I didn't know anything about this. So then he, the, the lady from Montreal came to visit in the pink dress, and she still kind of thought they were an item. No, they weren't. But I agreed very magnanimously. Okay, I'll pretend I'm just the housekeeper. Okay, so I'll be in the guest room downstairs. So I took out everything in the bedroom that was except apparently I forgot a bunch of hairpins on the nightstand. And she had been fooling herself into thinking that I was just the housekeeper, this stupid little kid, you know. (laughs) So (laughs) I was much more than the housekeeper and um, that kind of was a moment where I thought listen look if you think that pink dress lady is your soulmate if you think you can make a go with her you got my blessings I'll pack my pack and I'll take off and you'll never see me again and that was kind of like a pivotal moment it was like make or break Maybe, yeah, it's a big age difference. Um, I'm not part of his world. There are so many differences, so many contradictions. He was urban, Jewish, intellectual. I was from this little village, not really urban at all, not really uh, intellectual, not really. And no no education, no BA, nothing. So he's like, oh, no, no, don't go. Oh, no, no. And uh, so I allowed, very magnanimously, I wouldn't do it again. I would never do that again. Um, But I allowed her to take my place upstairs in the bedroom that night. And she come down. There was like the singer-songwriter Eric Anderson was a guest at the party. And they were starting to leave. And she comes down the stairs asking me pointedly, very loud voice, Anna, do you know where the candles are? Oh, Oh, and he, Irving heard her do this biachi kind of thing. That was it. That was pretty much it. He couldn't think of her anywhere remotely in the same way. So I won. (laughs) I won that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So you guys officially start a relationship. Mm -hmm. He proposes to you. We
1: got married somewhere over the Atlantic ocean. Um, he when the decree nisi his divorce came through from from harriet that's when i allowed myself to call myself mrs irving layton and i would i mean sometimes the cbc or ctv news in canada they would have news reports very skewed or biased against israel or biased against jews or bi- and i would call the newsroom in toronto this is mi- like get me the news editor and Who's this? This is Mrs. Irving Layton. I want to talk to the new... They would come to the phone. They would come to the phone. And then I started doing letters to the editor, and I just got this head of steam, like just a big, you know, kind of... um, uh, Just looking for fights, but not really, because they would come to the door. And then I would write these letters to the editor, and they would be published word for word. Wow. Like just word for word. And I learned that from Irving, because he had been a polemicist and an iconoclast. Like he would... When something didn't sit right, he would speak out. He'd push back. And I learned from him. I, oh, God, I learned so much from him. And uh, so we had this wonderful relationship, um, 24 hours a day in his company. Um, he, I would take dictation, and he dictated his, his autobiography. And at one point, I would just sit there, like, not to disturb him, because uh, one sentence could take maybe 20 minutes, and then he would think and think. Then he'd be on a roll, and it would be like six pages in twenty minutes. And I would get writer's cramp sometimes, and I would just switch hands rather than tell him stop. Woo woo woo, my hand's tired. I would just switch and write in with my left hand to keep up. And then I would type all of that, and then do all the revisions with him, and travel with him, go to readings. But over time, um, the yeah, the age difference kind of bit us both you know, in the behind. And he said, you know, Anna, it's not fair. I've had you all to myself for 13 years. You need to live your own life. You need to live. So by now I'm like in my 30s and he was coming down with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And that's no fun. Let me, let me tell you, that's no fun. If you're in your early 30s and you're watching him give a reading where he would have like in Italy, I mean, he was like a rock star. I mean, he would walk in and the people would pound the floor, they'd, they'd yell, they'd clap, applause, standing ovations. Now he's giving a reading in Montreal, like at Concordia University, and I was having to do little index cards. Hello. And I would have to write down, you know, nice to be here for this occasion. And I'd have to write down what the occasion was. And it was like, God, you know, my mountain is turning into grains of sand, front of my eyes it was very very difficult so but at the same time I had nothing left to give I had given of myself body mind and soul and because of my helping out so much his stock kind of rose again like he had another renaissance of popularity and fame and so people would write in they wanted pieces of him more and more people so I'd be like okay I'd be fulfilling you know, sending out the letters or responding, this one wants a photo, this one wants an article, this one wants a copy of your book. And I, and a lot of the people would write, it was a three-part um, kind of letter. It was praise, sob story, request. Gee, I saw you reading last last summer in Toronto, and you were just magnificent. I broke my leg now, but I've applied to the Canada Council, so if you could write me a letter of reference, like they did it all the time and sometimes I would look at them and I'd say well gee serving who's going to write my letters of reference and get me the $32,000 grant and um and that just kind of never happened but so after a while um it just became too much I had I could we got a social worker to help kind of and I even went to a psychiatrist and he kind of because I needed permission to leave him And um, we kept it on the hushy hush for the first year.
0: What do you mean you needed permission to leave him from his mental state that he was in or?
1: I didn't feel like I should. I felt it was morally wrong because that's when he needed me most. And at the same time, I was dying. I was dying on the vine. I was like spiraling like, oh, my God. And he would sometimes, I remember we would joke and he'd say, you know, longevity runs in my family. And I'd be like, oh, God, oh, no, like I'm going to be, what, 50 years old by the time I get my first job at McDonald's or something? Like, God, you know, I can't do this. And I started to panic because we didn't have a computer. I, I would type on the typewriter with carbon copies. I would save carbon copies of the letters that he dictated, which I would type up. And I would write on the bottom what the inclusions were that I sent and the date. And I would keep lists and do all the cataloging for, because Concordia has his papers. So I was really up on all that, like the best damned amanuensis any poets ever had, if I may say so myself. But towards the end, I had nothing left to give. So I remember walking past this little boutique store in Saint Laurent, like somewhere, Laurier Avenue in Montreal. And there was a fancy little candle little scented little candle and a crystal little candle holder and it was $17 which was a fortune for me in those days and I went in and I bought it and I'm like this is gonna be in my first apartment I will not light this until I'm living on my own and sure enough that's that's how it panned out I kind of knew I had to be on my own I had to I had nothing left to give
0: and did he And he obviously like you said knew that as well
1: he did And he helped me. He like emotionally, he was there for me to, yeah. You got to do it. You got to. So the and I didn't have any job. So the first apartment that I found, it was, um, usually if you don't have a job, you can't rent an apartment. But the guy had, he was he was from Montreal and he knew all about Irving and I think he'd been a former student of his. Oh, Irving Leighton. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's how I got my first apartment, just on approval because of my association with Irving. But the guilt and the grief took my words away. I went mute almost with grief and especially guilt, even though people said to me later, well, Anna, come on, like almost 50 years difference. Come on. You can't have expected yourself to, you know, stay on with him forever. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't fair to you. So you were right to leave him when you did and i probably was but it just oh my god it devastated me just devastated so i words didn't work anymore i went literally almost mute with grief and then one day i'm walking down the street surbrook street west in montreal and i see this painting big oil painting sky and a strip of sea blue and green field little scraggly little spruce tree and a patch of cultivated earth i'm like well that's from down home that's like acadian that's like down home so i go in and the gallery owner said yes that's tebow and it's a, he's acadian from prince Edward island so i was right about that and um it's a three thousand dollar painting i'm like matt i can do that myself i can do that so i went to concordia student fine art store and i said what do i need for oil painting, she said you need red, yellow, blue, white, and black. But don't use black. Buy it, but don't use it. Learn to mix your colors, and a brush or two, and some turpentine and linseed oil. And I was off to the races. So colors could uh, express. I could express myself through colors because it was so immediate and so joyful. But words kind of failed.
0: So you went from words being your primary method
1: primary nerve blood vessels circulatory system words were everything
0: to switching over to oil painting
1: oil painting yep
0: and this is in your first apartment on your own mm-hmm. doing all this mm-hmm. and Irving at this time is still alive
1: he's still alive and i missed him so much that i would go back every day for the first year i went i'd have my coffee and i'd be oh and i bought this montauk sofa this big, huge, you know, the shaggy, chic, the white canvas, those big, huge, it was like a $3,000 sofa. Gosh! And I would have my coffee and I didn't have to answer and I didn't have to say anything or be responsible. I would just enjoy my coffee with my feet up. And in the medicine cabinet, it was my stuff. It was nobody else's stuff. And then about ten o'clock, I missed him so much. I would get dressed and go visit and spend the day, and just converse and talk and talk and talk. And um, but I was no longer on duty. I wasn't answering the correspondence. I wasn't doing any of that. And sometimes the care caregivers who took over the um, they would be like, "Well, he's got to do like a dental claim on his insurance. How do you do that?" Oh my God, amateurs. Yeah. So I would like fill in and help out. But I was, no, I was now removed, and I'd see the pile of mail on the table. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but it's not my thing anymore. I, don't, um, I can't answer the, the letters or be that way with him anymore. So I, got, I went to the SPCA, and I got him a cat. I replaced myself with a cat so that he'd have something warm and fuzzy, I guess, to, to keep him company. And then a few years later, um, they, I got a call. And they said, well, Irving's in the old people's home and there's a box of stuff and you better come and get it. And what? Like they never even had the courtesy to tell me that um, your marital home as you left it is now being torn apart and he's, the house is sold. And they never let me have the chance to be with him one last visit in the home that had you know been out had been our place for so many years and I thought that was really cruel so I still have the knickknacks they gave me what was on the mantelpiece pretty much
0: was I can only imagine that that was extremely hard to see someone suffering from those um, diseases that are primarily affecting your mind when you have someone who is such a genius as you say yep. to kind of slowly degrading due to age and, you know, Alzheimer's. And uh, you said he had Parkinson's as well. Mm-hmm. That probably ripped you up inside watching that.
1: Uh, shredded me. Yeah. Absolutely. Who is this? Oh, Grant. Sh- oh, yeah. Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Sorry, Grant Grant showed me uh, <laughs> pictures over here, and I'm like, uh, um, Leonard Cohen.
1: Leonard Cohen. Famous
0: musician. Famous
1: musician. Um,
0: you got to know him through Irving as well?
1: Yes. Yeah. I got to know some, it, I hate to do the name dropping, it's like clunk, 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 but I've met so many people through Irving. Um, Cheslaw Miloš was a Nobel Prize winner. We were in Capri together, and... The introductions were taking so long, so I'm in, in the middle between Cheslow Milos and Irving Leighton, and they're exchanging notes kind of thing, like, when is this going to end? And then Cheslow leans over, we suffer together kind of thing. I mean, Arthur Miller, I, was, I met him, shook his hands. I was in his hotel room. Saul Bellow gave me a hug and a kiss in Montreal. Um, Fellini, Federico Fellini, the film, had lunch with him in Rome. Um, and Leonard Cohen, who was from Montreal, but from the rich side of town, Irving had been from the hard Scrabble early immigrant wave of Jewish, you know, Eastern European Jews, very, very poor as a child. And Leonard was born, I think, in 38, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. But Irving was born much earlier. And a lot of people, I've seen people write that they were students in class together. No. Or a lot of times you'll see people say or write about them as a couple, as a pair of friends, that uh, Irving was Leonard's mentor. And every time that came up, Irving would physically wince. Like he would flinch. No, no, no. He said, I saw him, I met him, he was 22. And he was a genius from the get-go. And all I had to do was introduce him to a few people in in the publishing world in Toronto. That's all I did. But beyond that, no, he, he didn't need any mentoring. And I witnessed Irving actually tell that to Leonard. Like he leaned in, you know, and Leonard, every time, I know you've seen it a hundred times too, that they say, I'm your mentor. I was never your mentor. You never needed me. And Leonard gave this little smile, like he acknowledged, and it was nice to hear kind of thing.
0: What was the age difference between Leonard Cohen and Irving Leighton?
1: So Irving would have been born... In 1912, and I think Leonard was born in 38. I think something like that. Oh gosh, I I probably have that wrong. But there was a substantial age gap. So Irving was already married. He had his a little house in a neighborhood called Cote Saint Luc, just north of Montreal, northwest of Montreal. And every Friday night, every anybody in Canada who wanted to be a poet, or who thought they were a poet they could come to his house and just sit around in the living room, drink wine and read their poems and expect like machine gun critique. You know, like bring your best because we're all in this to to do our best. So one day uh, Leonard showed up and he played, He I remember him saying that he s- played Suzanne to Irving. What do you think of this one? And he played him like, trying out Suzanne or one of these very very early songs and so Leonard decided at a certain point quite early on that he was better as a singer songwriter or songwriter than a poet and so he diverted and he went that direction but they remained friends and Leonard said of Irving there was Irving Layton and then there was the rest of us and also another because Leonard's dad had been in the clothing business men's haberdasher business and Leonard would say sometimes, I taught Irving how to dress and he taught me how to write. So they had this kind of you know wonderful, affectionate, um, mutual admiration. Um, and so the ta- there was this one day, it was early, I think 83, 84, when Leonard was in town and he was gonna come and visit. Well, I was so nervous. Oh my, because now it's like six years from that time in high school with the dusty turntable and now leonard cohen's going to come to visit and I, well i changed about 3 times and it was 100% humidity and i'm like oh i don't have enough cookies right so i go out across the street to the gas station there was a little convenience store and i get some oreos in now i'm sweating 100 times you know again i have to change and i'm upstairs changing i'm down to my i only have 3 changes of clothes anyway like that would look appropriate to meet leonard cohen And I get dolled up, and as best I could, like, schvitzing, like, just glowing. And I hear the door. He's here. So Irving went to open the door, and I hear them embracing in the hallway downstairs, and I hear the back slapping. Like, they're slapping each other's backs. And, how are you, Irving? Leonard? And I come down the steps, and we're introduced, and then we had this easy chair in the living room. It had been like a chess piece. We'd move this chair everywhere. So now it's in the living room, but the springs were shot. And before I had a chance to tell Leonard, don't use that chair. He oh. sat down and his elbows came up <laughs> to his ears. <laughs> he went right down to the floor. And from all the nervousness, I just started, I burst out laughing. Here's Leonard Cohen and, and the Armani suit jacket, you know, the shoulder pads, like were up oh. around his ears too. And then somehow he winched himself out. He gets out of the chair, slithers over and then sits down uh, across from the coffee table. I slithered off the couch and sat on the floor and Irving stayed on the couch next to me. And Leonard's sitting on the floor across from me and we, he'd brought bagels. And, you know, that's how it kind of started. And then at the end, because I was determined not to be starstruck. I, I'm like, listen, I'm with Irving and Irving's at the top of the mountain so I'm with Irving, so I'm not going to be like, ooh, I'm just going to be totally normal. Now, I was quaking inside, but uh, I didn't show it. I tried my best not to show it. And then friggin' the bathroom was upstairs. And as Leonard came to leave, as the, the time drew to close, he goes upstairs, uses the washroom, comes down. And friggin' Irving goes, Leonard, Anna's never going to flush that toilet again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, you know, great. Um, make me look like I'm uh, some kind of um, you know starstruck kid, and then he would come and visit, and I would make it my business to never, um, never make like he was a star. So he could let his hair down. He knew I wasn't gonna have girlfriends jumping out of the closet and trying to hug him or get autographs. He was totally in a safe house, very safe. And so one day, Irving's third wife, Aviva, comes to visit. And we're going to go to spend the afternoon with Leonard. We're going to have lunch with him and go to his house. And a friggin' aviva. She's like, enter. She was Australian. Enter. Bring your camera. Bring your camera. And I'm like, well, no, I don't do. I'm not going to take pictures with me and Leonard or Leonard and you. And No, he can be safe here and not be idolized or paparazzi or whatever. You know, he's among friends here. I don't do that. Enter bring your camera all right so i brought the camera but there was no film in it so i was obeying so <laughs> <laughs> she hit the roof she goes to the drugstore buys a roll of film and thank god she did because we did take a few photos yeah yeah the,
0: is this one that's, that's, that's in from the book
1: that, yeah in in my book there's that photo and i should have had a camisole on oh my god that was a mistake but um and also, I, my eyes are closed because that that was me kind of seeking shelter. Like, I didn't want to be doing this. I didn't want to be in that star-stuck role kind of thing. So I closed my eyes. Damn it. And there was only one shot taken of the three of us, me and Irving and, and Leonard. But, uh, yeah, thank God I did listen to Aviva. And I allowed, you know, the film to be inserted in the camera. So... so. I have...
0: Funny thing I want to kind of ask, I don't want to diminish who you are, but you're around these very affluent, popular artists and everything like that. Did they ever judge you differently or were you just...
1: Great question. I think there were some um, family members who probably had their noses out of joint because who's this little kid from Nova Scotia, this know-nothing, do-nothing, with no background, and she's become... The friggin' bushel of apples of his eye. Not just the apple. I mean, he wrote poems about me. He he dedicated one of his books to me. um. So I... And I became indispensable. I made myself indispensable. And I loved it because it was my choice. This wasn't him dominating or exploiting. No, 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 no. This was me harnessing my energy to his career. And, and so... All he had to do, and I would tell him, I didn't even have to tell him, Irving, all you have to do is wake up and have your coffee, read the paper. I do the rest. And I did.
0: So you did like a, a role reversal flip roll from his past wife who he was supporting yep. all the way for her to reach her goals. Now you're giving him that power back to be an artist again and write poetry. And you yep. were taking on the background work of that. Yeah.
1: When he would write a poem, like he would run it by me. Like he, first of all, he would write it down himself, and then he would read it to me, and then I would be typing it and retranscribing it because his handwriting was starting to deteriorate. So um, he would say, I not know, what do you think is better? Did Da-da-da it Or did it And I would make my decision, and he'd say, why? And I had to defend my choice. So it was like a master class for 13 years like, oh, my God, I learned so much about how to marry sound and sense. How to, which word to use, which words to leave out. How do you get the, the power? Like he, to him, poetry was like a, an oxo cube, a concentrated bouillon cube. Everything reduced down to the barest, most powerful elements. And you had to use the right words to do that, to carry the meaning. Marriage of sound and sense. And the cadence and the rhythm and the musicality. I mean, he would tap out the the the, the meters and the feet on the tabletop like he tap out the poems, uh, the the rhythm of them. And that's why they're so memorable. They're so easy to remember because they're so well crafted. And when Leonard would come over and they would just speak, you know, over the table, you could see them like lap it like jewelers. They would just craft their words and and give each other like gifts, verbal gifts. It was like a jousting, but not a jousting match. It wasn't fencing or, or sparring. It was just the, the joy of being able to express with the most colorful, the most appropriate language, uh, with humor, because Leonard had a great sense of humor. In fact, one day, one of the first times that he came over, he brought this huge bouquet of flowers. And I didn't know, I I wasn't sophisticated. I wasn't, you know... I was still very green, and I remember they had, there were Peruvian lilies. I didn't even know what they were, but Leonard said, oh, look, these are Peruvian lilies. You're a Peruvian lily, he added. You know, it was kind of funny and kind of charming. And so I busied myself looking for a vase, and I don't think we even had a vase. But I found something, and in the wrapping of the bouquet of flowers, there was this packet of white powder. Oh, Oh, my God leonard cohen rock star is introducing me to cocaine oh my (laughs) god and i'm like you know palpitations and what am i going to do with this and are we going to do it together like in the dining room or after dinner or like what and then i turn the packet over and it's like put this in the vase in the flower water to preserve (laughs) the flower it's a good thing i didn't try to snort it or say anything, like go in there and with a plate and a razor blade or something. Oh my
0: God, that would have um, been hilarious. Uh, true story, though. How long was it after your relationship from the romantic sense and your support with him and his work and his poetry, was it before you uh, published this book, Good is Gone?
1: Um, I think I always knew that I would write a book. I think I always, because I kept meticulous notes. I wrote things down, like the journal entries. I still do; it's a habit. Um, Who came over? Who called? um, Who did he call? I I wrote everything down so that my purpose was, if somebody ever wanted to recreate his life, like do a documentary or a like film, movie film. um, Here's here's the information. This is all you need to know. This is what he ate. This is what he, how he dressed. This is what he, how he behaved, how he acted. And so I was always very close to his work and I would try to write short stories. There were a few times and it became an inside joke. He would say like, well Anna, go upstairs and write a short story. We're gonna short story. Okay, so I would go up and I would sit at the typewriter and I would start to write. And about half an hour later after, and I'd washed the hardwood floors, you know, the steps. And I hear him fiddling in the kitchen with a tin coffee pot, and I'm like. So he would come up the steps, kind of handshaking, and then drip, drip, drip all the way up. But he'd be bringing me my second cup of coffee and he'd poke through the door, and got anything for me to read? Got anything to read to me?" And I would have maybe a sentence or two or maybe a paragraph, and then I would read it to him and we would discuss it. And I had drum tobacco, I'd roll my own drum cigarettes. And we'd have a little smokey-wokey, and we'd have the coffee waffy, and I would tell him about what I was working on, and he would discuss it like I was legit, serious, real, as real as rock writer, you know? He took me seriously. And um, then we'd talk, and then he'd be like, oh, but what's for lunch? Because by now, the morning's shot. It's just gone, And um, so I'd have to make lunch and then do whatever, go out and mow the lawn, trim the hedge, fix the fur, whatever else I had to do. And uh, that's so he would be dictating letters. Well, Anna's working on her first short story. And then a year later, well, Anna's working on her. And I'm like, Irving, maybe let's not say that to people in your letters because it's looking like I'm not getting very far, you know. And it became an inside joke, but I never could quite finish my short stories because his. Life. I mean, it took precedence, you know, his career and like the demands, uh, interviews, journalists. And I kind of ran interference for all of that and learned a whole bunch. So and after I left him, I remember, oh, God, it was very shortly after I'd left. There was some kind of a thing on TV, a documentary about him um, or in conjunction with his birthday. And I remember going to the phone and dialing and calling him. And every other time, because I'd been with him, when there would be something on TV, a National Film Board documentary or whatever, and people would start calling. Like, oh, Irving, I just saw that. Oh, it was wonderful. And he'd, we'd feel these calls. And now I'm in my own place, and I'm one of the people calling in to his house. And he's alone. He's got a caregiver sleeping upstairs. But, and I remember breaking down and crying. I said, what was it all about? Irving, what, what, what were we? What was it all about? And he kind of present, but kind of not present. And he said, I don't know. And it was like such a sobering moment. It was so sad. And so I felt like I was so alone, like so, so nobody could understand what I had been through. The good and the bad. Nobody could know. And uh, so I just continued on my way. And I began teaching myself how to paint and he was so relieved that I could still connect with my creativity even though painting because I remember at one point I read him something that I had written and he looked at me it was like the biggest compliment I've ever gotten he said blessed is the teacher whose student surpasses him say that again blessed is the teacher whose student surpasses him oh wow goosebumps I still have chills yeah And so he was really happy for me to, when he would see me writing, but then when he saw me painting and I brought him a couple pieces and he bought them. My first two sales, he bought them, $100 each. Um, And he made sure they were in the living room, anybody who came to the house. There's Anna's painting and there was, the other one was up in the bedroom and anybody who went to use the washroom could see it. It was very visible.
0: What were the two paintings?
1: One was a landscape of a beach from Nova Scotia, where I'm from. And the other one, I called it Lady with the, D- with the Dior Hat. Basically, it started as me cleaning my brush, but then I added a face under the swirl. It looks like a Christian Dior big, huge hat. And there's this lady, um, kind of mulberry, dark mulberry, purpley background, and then these kind of muted tones for the face. It's a little off, but he loved it. He thought it was... It had some mystique or something mystery to it. And he had that in the living room. And then there was another one, a sort of a self-portrait. And the, there was like a dividing line down the th- front of the throat kind of thing. It was not abstract. It was very representational. It was kind of me, but not me, but me. And I showed that to him and he said, oh, he said, you look as stunned by the victory as having been in the war. So my coming through of being with him and then having to go through that barbed wire of, you know, on the belly, like kind of crawling my way through into a new life that was on my own. Um, He, he, I think he really admired that the courage that I'd had to leave him because it took quite a bit of courage. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And it when the word got out, I mean, it was on the national news. Oh, Irving Leighton and... Anna split up. Oh god.
0: But it was mutual. It was a mutual split. It was an understanding. Yeah. And did you write the book after he passed away or was he still he
1: I started writing it. I think he was in Maimonides. I think it was after he yes, it was after he died. So he never saw it, but I'm sure he knows. I'm pretty sure he knows. Yeah. So
0: after After you get this book published and you tell this story, what comes next in your life? What did you start doing?
1: I had been, (laughs) my DNA is on every bus in Montreal pretty much because I was just doing the same thing every day, the 61 and the 103, go to work, get on the subway, 35 below zero and doing secretarial work you know, office work, clawed my way up to be an executive admin, you know, in the commercial real estate world. Um, that was bad, because um, I knew nothing. I knew nothing, so I'd wing it. And then eventually I'm like, I know every crack in the sidewalk, and oh, geez. But before that, oh yes, probably another interesting little tidbit, I took up freestyle wrestling. I don't know, I, there were these guys at the gym, and they spoke weird languages and they were in the sauna. And I'm like, what is that language? What are they doing? They're like soaking wet. Do they stand in a shower? What are they? Well, that's the Montreal Wrestling Club. And the languages I was hearing Soviet Georgian, I was hearing Iranian, Russian, Ukrainian, um, French Canadian too. And so I went up to this guy, like, what, what is that? It's Sakartvelo, like, it's Soviet Georgian. Oh, well, how do you say yes? How do you say no? How do you say? And I just began. And then I had lost 80 pounds through Weight Watchers. Thank you, Weight Watchers. And uh, I was now going back to the gym to just tone up a little bit. So I ran into these wrestlers. Um, I'm in my 30s. And just because of the language thing, I'm asking them, I'm bugging them about how do you say this and that in Georgian. And one of the other guys had been a five time Greco Roman Olympian. He was a local at the gym. He said, well, you know, my wife is a Hungarian gymnast and she'd like to get into wrestling. And why don't you and her go to the Claude Robillard Center, take a course there, a class, you know, it's so I did. I thought I'd lived from the neck up with Irving Leighton for 13 years. Now I'll live from the neck down with, you know, physicality. And who knew? Who knew? According to Ancestry DNA, I've got the fast twitch muscle, which is uh, muscle fiber which is uh, common to elite power athletes. Who knew? I went from couch potato to wrestler. Who knew? And um, so she, I went to the Claude Rabiar Center. She didn't show up because she had two little babies at home. So they said, okay, like, we'll teach you some basic moves. But it was very intimidating. It was all, you know, guys mostly. And then somebody said, well, you know, if you really want to r- wrestle, you really have to join the Montreal Wrestling Club. But the coach is Russian, and he doesn't like women. Because when they find out they have to cut their nails, they quit. Or they, you know, have to cut their hair or whatever. So I kind of turned up like a bad penny to the Montreal Wrestling Club. And I would do the stretches and on the sidelines and watch and watch and watch. And they said, no, we're training the guys for the Nationals. We don't have time to take new people. But I kept turning up. I just kept turning up. And I did my stretches and um, took in. And then these three boys... Came on in off the street with baseball caps. Oh yeah, come on, come on! And I'm like, wait a minute, what? You wouldn't take me, you wouldn't train me, but these these newbies here. What the hell? Okay, come on, you two. Well, the three boys never showed up again. And so my first competition was the nationals. Wow. I, I mean, perseverance. I went, yeah, I went from zero to whatever. In a very short amount of time. And I was very, I was working eight hours a day in these offices and I trained six days a week for three and a half years and became national senior women's gold medalist.
0: Oh, that is, that's awesome. It's crazy. (laughs) You, you strike me as someone who once you get something in your blood from writing, painting, you go for it.
1: No holds barred.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Like you're saying these burly men are like, we don't want nothing to do with this girl. And you're like, yeah. no, I am going to yeah. be here.
1: Yeah. And then the coach, I remember I overheard him went, if only the rest of the guys could be more like Anna. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, um, you backpacked in Europe as mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what age was that when you're doing your backpacking in Europe?
1: Oh, I was 20. That was, that's,
0: that was right after the...
1: Met Irving, and then two months later, I met him in Feb, February 16th, 1981, and then by June the 5th, I got on a plane to from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to, yeah, flew to Paris.
0: And from Paris, you just went all over Europe? No,
1: I just went to Spain, and went to the Running of the Bulls, um, slept outside for the first time, Memo: Always put a plastic bag over your boots to keep the dew off. Memo, uh, didn't know that at the time. Um, ended up in Athens. I lived in Athens. I worked in a uh, as a chambermaid. Uh, insider tip: Work in a C-class hotel because you don't have to be really meticulous. <laughs> 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 um, it was winter time, right off Ammonia Square in Athens, and then this little old lady. She was a tiny little bird. And she spoke no English. So by this time, I, I taught myself, you know, how to say yes, no, thank you, whatever. And she would say, And I'd say, Ti? And she'd come back from the second floor with pillowcases. Ah, oh, pillowcases. Okay, Deftero, second floor. Okay. And that's how I kind of learned. And because I had no choice with her. And then she'd say, Like, sit down, sit down. Take it easy. Sit down. And then... Little bird goes down, biatch, goes down to the manager. Well, she just sits all day. She doesn't do anything. No, you ordered me to sit down. But they were on to her, so. But she would feed me these spanakopitas and little mandarin oranges. It was quite an experience. And from that, like, I picked up a lot of Greek.
0: Yeah, I was going to um, say, you're, you you. know how many languages?
1: Probably about seven. Wow. Seven.
0: That's, that's like, mind-blowing to me where... <laughs> I've tried to pick up languages here and there. I, I worked at a um, cemetery for a while with nothing but um, Hispanics right?
1: right, and
0: none of them knew English. So through that, I had to pick up Spanish and I picked up all the words for like tools and things like Mm -hmm. that. But through time, just the lack of speaking at all went out the window. Yeah. Um, but that's so cool that you were able to pick up and learn seven languages. And you did that through your backpacking experience, mm-hmm. just through Europe. Yep. Is there any country over there that you just fell in love with? Or was the whole experience itself just encompassing? And
1: The whole experience was was life altering. Uh, one of the places I loved the most, I think, was Greece. I mean, it didn't take much. If you went outside of the village into the countryside, you were in the same kind of locale or same setting as Ulysses, as Odysseus. Um, it hadn't really changed. So it was like going back and again, that thing with time and connecting with time. And I think that the, the, the knack or what helped me learn languages so quickly, I think, was this need to communicate and to commune with people, to make those connections. And also the feedback, if especially in a country like Greece, oh, I remember these soldier boys, I'm walking down, walking down Le Kavita Street and um, they were tagging along, kind of following like, where are you from, you know, where are you going kind of thing. And I answered them in Greek, and they were like, what, you speak Greek? Like, wh- which part, of, what? But you say you're Canadian? So which part of Greece are your parents from? And I'm like, oh, here, I make like, I'm Canadian, I'm not Greek. They thought I was trying to whitewash my ethnic origins and pretend I was just Canadian, like white Canadian. And they got mad at me. They got really heated. And I'm like, oh, here, he, you make I'm So that was kind of an experience. Or they would, you know, the flirt, like the little flirty guys. And uh, what's your name? Where are you from? And I said, I'm from the moon. And they were like, like taken aback. And holy cow, like sassy and, you know, like approachable, but sassy. Oh, God. So I had so much fun, like just connecting with people that way. And they would, especially the Greeks, because it is a difficult language. And they would be so appreciative. Any effort made. Oh, they they just loved it. Wow. So it was very encouraging to continue.
0: So over your over your life, you've been a writer, a painter, photographer as well. I mm-hmm. think you've done a little photography mm-hmm. as well. You've backpacked Europe. You have driven vehicles.
1: Learned to drive a water truck.
0: Learned to drive a water truck. And that's kind of where I'm bringing this back to you. Dated, um or were married to Irving Leighton, this huge, encompassing life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And not to disparage you, but... <laughs> <used> to it. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up with a truck driver out of Utah?
1: Well, we're, we'll gloss over the 10-year in-between stint with a Tunisian Muslim, 12 years my junior. We'll gloss over that. I met him at the wrestling mats. And he was like, my visa's running out in four months. How about I move in with you? And I'm like, oh, okay. And we got married. And he was like, well, what if my mom calls? And we're talking in French because he was Arabic and French, a little bit of English. And um, he said, you know, if my mom calls and you answer the phone, and that would be like living in sin. So we should get married. Oh, okay. So we did. And that was 10 years, which I figured out too late. That was my self-incarceration. That was me punishing myself for having left Irving. Because now I'm sitting at home on a Friday night looking at the four walls. He's gone to the mosque to pray and then to the cafe to play chess until 2 a.m. He's with his co-fellow, you know, compatriots. He's with other Tunisians. He's speaking his language. He's eating Tunisian food. He's not missing home. He's got everything. I'm sitting at home, looking at the four walls. And he was very devout. So even Listerine, that had to be poured down the sink because there's alcohol in it. Um, The restaurants we went to couldn't have like a wine sauce or anything. Very, very strict that way. It had to be halal, like kosher kind of, well, halal food. And um, he was a very good man, but not for me. Not... Compatible, just not for me. And I woke up after this 10-year sort of nightmare. I was punishing myself for having left Irving. So once I woke up from that, literally, physically woke up, and I'm like, dude, this isn't working. I can't do this anymore. You need to find a place to stay because we're done. I can't. So now, and he agreed, and it was amicable, and it was I I wrote up the divorce agreement. The judge granted it like instantly after we separated, lived apart for a year. And by now, I'm free, but I had started going to the gym, and I blew my back out. I had got a discectomy because I got too enthusiastic. I told the trainer, yeah, I used to wrestle, and she drew up this plan, blew the back out. And um, so (laughs) now I've got a cane, and just when I'm divorced— and I'm about to start my 50s. Like, I I've lost my whole 40s. Gone. Just down the tubes. But I'm free. I'm single again. I'm working in these offices, kind of living on air. Didn't have a lot of means. And I wanted to travel. So like I was saying earlier, I knew every crack in every sidewalk. My DNA was on the, the 24 bus, on the, oh, God, over and over again, the same thing. Hamster in the wheel. So I thought, let me try to break into the journalism thing. And in those days, the gas prices shot up and ride share was a thing. You could do ride share and now I'm like, hmm, people have cars and they're so independent, but now with the high gas prices, they've got to share their vehicles. If they're going to Ottawa or they're going to Toronto, whatever, why don't I try to get a ride share and I'll write about the experience and try to sell it and break into the, you know, writing world after this circuitous kind of 10 year stint. And uh, I'm like looking at Craigslist. Oh, my Drummondville. Who wants to go to Drummondville or Victoriaville? Oh, boring. So I look up another Craigslist and it's New York City. Yeah, that's more exciting. Buddy was an Italian-born singer-songwriter in his 30s. He was going doing gigs from New York to Portland. Needs a travel, Buddy. He said, pay for your own hotel room, pay for your food. The gas is covered. I just need somebody like to pass the time and keep me awake. So I wrote an email and I kind of auditioned for the gig. So I, well, I speak Italian, and, and he said, "What kind of perfume do you wear?" And what, what was the last three CDs you bought? What kind of music do you listen to? So I'm like Hermes, Jardin sur le Nil, and I rattled off the music. I get the part. I get the gig. So he's like, "All right, meet me in this uh, whatever it was like, meet me in New York City." Oh, God, no, I just spent 78 bucks on a concert ticket to see Leonard Cohen live in Montreal. I can't make it. There's no way. All right, next time I have a trip, I'll let you know. So, a couple months later, he calls and he says, I'm leaving for Portland. Meet me at Nietzsche's Bar in Buffalo, New York. Okay. So, I get a Greyhound bus ticket and I slept, I overslept, missed the bus. I call him. Just take the next bus, okay? So I cross the border and I'm at the customs thing. And buddy's like, "Well, what do you do for work? Uh, I'm unemployed right now, but I'm going to write an article about this singer guy. Oh, really? Who's going to publish it? Well, I, I don't know yet. But so wait, you've got a one-way ticket? No, there was a, there was a return, but it was like open-ended. You don't have a job, and you're meeting who now? you're what do I know this singer what and I said listen and he go, what, what do you do and I I looked at him and I'm like I'm a writer and that was the first time the words came out of my mouth and just the way I said it Mr. American you know custom guy in the <laughs> uniform very intimidating a sweat was pouring down my back because if I get turned back well I can't get the ride and everything's you know was all right, I'll let you in this time. But if you ever try this stunt again, I will you will be refused entry. Like barks it out like he's in the Marines or something. I go pee and I get it back on the bus. I made it. And then I I finally meet Ray, Tarantino, and total stranger. We hit it off. Pure platonic meeting of the souls. He was a photographer first, but also a singer-songwriter. And he was just a song away from becoming. Like he could have been like a Dave Matthews kind of thing. But anyway, so we go across the country and he played like in Chicago, played in Cleveland, played in Des Moines, uh, Davenport, Denver. And by the time, and we spent a night in Ogden. Who knew? Who knew? And we got in late at night. We're at the Sleep Inn in Ogden. Room 22 was my room. I still remember it. And in the morning, because I, I, it was pitch dark when we arrived, and I opened the door, and I see these mountains. And it was, like, being pushed in the chest by two hands, like an Elaine on Seinfeld. I'm like, whoa. And the heat, there was, like, this heat coming in. Like, it was so hot, and these huge mountains, like, just stunning. And then later, I meet Grant. I'll get to that. And he goes, why didn't you tell me? I was living in Clearfield. But anyway, so we get to, we get to Troutdale, Oregon, and it's like two thirty in the morning, and I'm like, you know, I can't afford to stay in Portland because he was going to hit Portland, get a band together, and I'm I'm never going to be able to afford to. So let's go to the fuel island at the TA truck stop, and I'll just hitch a ride. And he's like, well, how long is this going to take? Well, I got to make sure if things go south, at least let them be decent looking, you know. <laughs> he said, you can't pick and choose. You can't. Pick. Yeah, I can. And uh, so I ended up spending a night in a hotel and I ended up ride sharing and hitchhiking and getting in with the truck. Um, ended up in Santa Fe because I was, a th- I had this vision, Santa Fe, Santa Fe, I had no idea what it, you know, what it looked like. I just thought, Santa Fe, okay. And then I started to panic. Well, how do I get from the highway to wherever it is? Like, I don't have a car. And what, what year is this? This is in 2008. I left Montreal on the 8th of August, 2008, eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year. That's when I left, and that trip, two months, I'm 49 years old, um, got a backpack, a 70 liter backpack, uh, screwed up leg, but I didn't care. And I just kind of ended up, I fetched up in Austin, Texas, stayed there, went down to Tucson, had a friend there, went to visit, walked across the Mexican border to Nogales for the day, um, fetched up in Austin, went back to Montreal, and I'm like, God, back again. Oh, the same cracks in the same sidewalk, the same bus. And I missed being on the road so much that I started looking up YouTube videos, of, and I stumble on this community of truck drivers. And lo and behold, some dude called Trick My Truck, and he was really funny. And he had these sardonic little, you know, he would do these funny little short films and he, he would put great music tracks and Dylan and stuff. So I started leaving sardonic witty comments. And he's like, you're the only one who gets what I'm doing. So he, I built a YouTube channel. He started leaving comments on my stuff. Next thing we're Skyping and he was working at night. So he'd come home from work. I'd be getting up to go to work. We'd be playing chess over the weekend, like playing chess on the computer and talking and talking and talking. Now he's all Mr. Silent Pants. But anyway, um, he used to be so loquacious. And uh, so I'm like, you know, I, he's, I like this guy. He's really, you know, and we got along like a house on fire. And then he posted a video of him in his semi getting he was actually lost. Now it can be told. He was off behind Spanish Fork somewhere and it was a little tiny country road. And the song that he put on the track was by Don Williams, God, right? Musical God, Don Williams, till the rivers all run dry. And that was pretty much it. Like I fell in love with him, like that music and the scenery and the truck. I mean, let's face it. Truckers are kind of sexy. Let's face it. And, um, so he, you know, I'm like, God, I, I still want to move to Austin, but I can't. There's no way. And, and after 9 11, you couldn't just cross the border and live in the States. That was, so we're talking. And he's like, Oh, why don't you just come down here and we'll get married and then you can do whatever you want? Oh, well, that's, how do you know I'm not an axe murderer? Like, you know, like that's a big you know, leap of faith. And um, we looked into it, and it's like, well, if it's proven to be just on paper, it's two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, and it's five years in jail. Oh shoot, we're not going to do that then. So
0: we, can- <laughs> I, 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 just got to jump in here real quick. You do the best impersonations. I've heard Australian now, American <laughs> trucker, American like uh, customs agent, Italian. <laughs> you, uh, you should do like. Um, Wait till she does you. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> yeah.
1: Parrot brain, that's what Irving used to call me. Mind like a flypaper. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of fell in love with him and then I thought, well, you know, and this trucker community on YouTube, there was this Zoe Toots was her handle. And she sadly has since passed away, but I she I could see they were communicating and she knew all these people in the in this group and I emailed her, I messaged her this grant guy like is he a good guy like is he oh yeah he's a really good guy he's really nice he's really nice so I got her kind of green flag and uh, I thought well I owe it to myself to meet him in person so I rearranged my little work schedule and I flew down and I met him and I was still talking about Austin so buddy boy takes a week off his work and he drove me. we went on day trips every day Austin doesn't have this. Look at the, you know, Skyline Trail, Timpanogos. Austin doesn't have this. So he was trying to sell me on Clearfield versus Austin or Utah versus Texas. And, but the, the Austin thing could never have materialized anyway. So it was like a pipe dream. So then come September, no, July, later that summer, um, now it's 2009, he was having a family reunion in Page, Arizona. So I thought, well, he goes, what are you doing next week or whatever? So I rearranged my little sked, flew down. We drove down with his daughter and granddaughter, go to the family reunion in Page. Everybody was there. And after three days, um, his mom said, as we were packing up to leave, well, Grant, why don't you just marry her? We love her already. And so I'm like, okay, that, yeah, this will work. Because I'd fallen for him. So I went back to Montreal and I had these, I had a gold spangled bracelet with three diamonds and some other pieces and I melted them down, made our rings, flew back down in September and we were supposed to get engaged formally because then I was going to do the K1 visa, like on the TV show, but for real, like not really the TV show. And um, so (laughs) I only had like the weekend left. And buddy boy here, he's lounging on the couch, he's watching college football, it's getting late. I'm like, when is the proposal going to, like, are we not going to a restaurant or doing something conventional like that? Like, what? Like, I'm leaving, you know, I'm going back. Oh, well, nothing, I've just been working on my YouTube video. <laughs> I was ready to brain them. I'm like, God. you know, these are $1,200 rings and I'm leaving tomorrow. So, yeah, come and see what I've been working on. And he posted a YouTube, he posted it, didn't even run it by me. He posts it on YouTube, and it's called Trick My Truck Proposes. And he did a, on, in his truck, driving on I-15, in a safe manner, in a safe manner, but filming himself, saying that he met this gal and he likes her a lot. And since we met on YouTube, I thought I'd propose on YouTube. And Anna Potier, would you like to, would you marry me? Well, the answer was a resounding yes. yeah yeah
0: you uh you sent us that video and we were both watching it it's super cute yeah like most unconventional way of a proposal but it was it screamed him Yep. and it it was really awesome Yep. and so then you moved down to utah you start your life with grant um
1: 2010 i i gave up my life in montreal sold gave away my stuff got a u-haul and i drove solo to utah in a u-haul a 10-foot cube van Took me five days, and he's like on the like, where are you at? You know, (laughs) like he could have done it in three days or two and a half doing, you know, driving team and twenty four hours. The first day I left Montreal at five in the morning, and I drove to Cornwall, Ontario, and I slept for ten hours. I mean, I was exhausted, and it was scary. I wasn't used to driving. I had lapsed my license had more or less lapsed since I smashed the car with Irving in. February of eighty three, so I hadn't. I'd been walking in Montreal for all those years, and taking buses, the buses, buses and all that. Strap hanging, yep. Subway buses, walking, and uh, parsing out my bus tickets. You know, like oh, I'll walk there, but I'll take one bus back. You know, to save the tickets, and then I got bus passes when I finally had a job and enough money to buy passes. But uh, so yeah, I mean, I took the U-Haul and I got to Rawlings. The three sisters who knew about shifting who knew the engine died i was practically going backwards and then down i was doing like georgia overdrive like just put it in neutral just hold the steering wheel <laughs> hope the wheels don't come off and um then i get i'm crossing the plains and i can see the i can see the the wasatch and who was that what is that song what is that song that we listen to? Oh, oh it's um Easy Rider song. it came on the radio and I'm like, I can see the I can see the mountains. I just get through those and I'm home. And I pretty much cried the whole last you know sixty miles. And then I get off a I eighty four. I take I eighty four by mistake, and that's the only time I called. There's a toll road here. No, no, don't take that. Don't take that. Come back to Riverdale. And then, um, so I drove in and he freaking in my fantasy, he was supposed to come out of the house and greet me at the door as I drove in. No, he's in the house. And I mean, it's like, God, you want me to go back to Montreal and do this again? Like, you know, you're supposed to meet. So he finally comes out and I opened the door and I pretty much stum I pretty much fell out of the truck. I was so tired. And, um, cause I wasn't used to driving at all. But uh, yeah, and that started my, my Utah adventure. And because of Grant, um, bless his heart and everything else, I was able to f- have the time and the luxury to stay home and finish writing my book. Wow. That's why it's dedicated to him.
0: That's awesome. And Grant, you did Grant teach you how to drive the water truck and all that?
1: Yes, he did. He took his life in his hands because um, <laughs> I didn't drive stick. I didn't drive you know, barely at all. Let alone a big, huge truck. Uh, a little. Well, it was a little freight liner, but it was big to me. And I only had like about a week to learn. So his buddy Jeremy, who worked at the Reynolds Pit, wanted to hire me. He said, "I got fifty guys. None of them want to do their CDLs, and I need a water truck driver. Do you want to do it?" And I'm like, "Okay." So um I got my license, and he was. We went on that road alongside where the salt air is, kind of like. Well, Grant was smoking in those days. And I remember the panic. Clutch and break, clutch and break. And he starts pounding on the dashboard. Like, How do you forget clutch and break? Ah." (laughs) And it was, you know, it was a straight road, like no hills or anything. And I was panicking. And he kept trying to explain about the cogs and the sink and the the mesh and the things. and And I'm like, What do you mean by put the clutch in? What do you mean? Like, pull it, take it out? Is that letting my foot off? Or do I press on it? What do you want me to do? Like, it doesn't make sense. Put it in or take, I don't know. And it was like stalling and the rabbiting and jumping and jumping. And then he'd stop the truck, pull over. And he'd get out and, you know, puff a cigarette in three seconds. (laughs) (laughs) The nerves. But, uh, yeah, so I finally learned, and then I I would be doing dust control in these two aggregate pits, here one on Bacchus and one on 5400, and sometimes they'd send me out to construction sites. Oh, they just didn't know how scary that was. And um, you have no idea how fast a truck can tip over if you're backing onto a gravel pile. You have no—it's like a can opener. It just pops you over. Very scary moments. Very scary moments. But I finally got to the point where I could drive out of the yard, go onto the road, live traffic with stop signs and traffic lights and hills with 4,000 gallons of water and do it and not stall. Yeah, huge accomplishment.
0: I can sympathize with you, Grant, though, because I've had to teach some. Well, that's what I do. I teach people how to drive these big vehicles. And I remember uh, ex of mine, I had to teach her how to get her license. And if I would have been smoking back then, it would have been. Yeah. Chain, chain smoking. <laughs> chain smoking, definitely. Yep. I want to ask you something about this book. The title, Good as Gone. What does that mean?
1: Good as Gone, to me, an artist's worth is equal to the degree to which he or she is willing to be good as gone. Like, go for it. Like, sacrifice or take chances. Um, Irving has a poem called Fortuna et Cupidas, which means chance and desire, or appetite and luck. So lucky things can happen, but you also have to have the desire, the appetite to go for it, like take those chances. So the degree to which you're willing to just, you know, go with it, take, take a leap, um, that's the degree to which you can possibly find a certain level of success or fulfillment because um, success is measured in many different ways as you know it doesn't have to be your bank account or grants or prizes won. it's if you can craft that one good sentence or paint that one good painting or, or drawing that resonates with somebody else's soul that's success
0: wow well that i would say that encompasses what i've heard from your life story here that you've you really encompassed that and just put it like that, do you have any life regrets or there, is there anything out there that you, did you ever have children?
1: Two, um, two terminations because at many times when there's no choice, that's your only choice. Mm -hmm. And the first one, oh yeah, the Georgian wrestler. Yeah. That was a mistake. That was a mistake because at the time Irving was going downhill and he knew that there was a little a fairy-wary going on on the side and he was grateful like oh well I can't husband her anymore so if she's finding some kind of companionship after hours kind of thing okay and i thought that i was counting the days wrong i had that i had that dead wrong <laughs> so oops um and it was like well what am i going to do he's 19 i'm 34 and w- and Irving thought, in his mind, from his generation, most women wanted kids. And he, th- he said to me, look, like, I, I had to tell him about it, and just because I needed 300 bucks to go to the clinic. And um, he said, well, but if you want to keep it, you and um, the guy, why don't you move into the basement and, you know, have this child, and I'm like, oh my God, National, like Time Magazine or McLean's in Canada, they'd be at the door. Mm-hmm. They'd be knocking at the door. So there was there was no way. It was just not done. Yeah. So I went by myself to the clinic and I walk in and it's Paul Anka's. You're having my baby on the intercom. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and um, the ladies were so nice. They were so nice. And I come out of it and I'm like, oh, and I want to see it. Like, let me see. So I had a look and I, I saw the result. And to me, there was no choice. There was so no regrets whatsoever. And then, with my second husband, with the Tunisian wrestler, I was on antibiotics. Who knew it affected the effectiveness of the uh, the pills, the birth control pills, and that was an oops. That was a major oops because I started saying something like, "Well." He'd have the best of both worlds because with Irving, who was secular, very Jewish, but uh, secular, like he didn't go to synagogue. And I absorbed a lot of that appreciation for Judaism. And I say to my Muslim husband, well, the child would be respectful of both worlds. Oh, no, no, he would be Muslim. And I'm like, oh, wrong answer. There's no there's no future here. No. So we went together to the clinic. And he went to the gym to have a workout and I came too. and he drove me home and then he got on the phone with his friend and spoke in Arabic for about an hour. So I was like, okay, I'm on my own, Um, great decision. This was the right thing to do. And besides, we would have what, kept it in a shoebox by the door? Like we had a tiny 500 square foot apartment and barely enough money to feed ourselves. So, and then there was another time I was still with Irving and I believe I had a miscarriage. All I know is I was in, I was in the shower, something happened, came out and I picked it up and it had little white segments down the back and it had two big navy blue spots, looked like a chicken embryo and I knew I hadn't made it with a chicken. So (laughs) I had to be a human embryo, had to have been. And I have this overwhelming sense of wanting to reinsert it and nurture it. And like the, the, the feeling was just indescribable. But it was like, well, it's too late. It's not meant to be. It's not in the cards. And it wouldn't be fair because Irving was in his We had talked about having kids, but um, it wouldn't have been fair not with that age difference so, no way
0: so you're 60, Four. 64 64 yeah. so no biological children no. of your own and that's never been kind of a no
1: issue no and no issue. regrets <clears throat> no regrets whatsoever um once in a while like i think to myself oh, god i'd have like a 30 something year old georgian acadian person running around Like whoa and i speak georgian a little bit i still remember a lot of the like I can say, dead birds in Georgian, moktachiti, <laughs> and lamazo uh, shuknebi, pretty Christmas lights. I can say stuff like that in Georgian for some reason. Lam gogo bicho dedichema mama chema chemi, and um, which is totally useless. But uh, I have no regrets. No, it would have been so weird and difficult. And when you can't, if you can't even feed yourself or clothe or house yourself you mustn't bring a child into that you mustn't for the child's sake
0: yeah i no judgment from me i i often find myself because there's a very right-leaning thought process in our society where it's like you know no you do the deed you have no you're not in charge of telling people what they should or should not do with their whole lives and their circumstances. So to me, Mm -hmm. it's up to the individual.
1: Totally up to the individual. I mean, if you can, if you can love it and nurture it, clothe it, uh, feed it, uh, educate it, house it and, and love it. Yes, by all means. But if you can't, then don't. Oh my God, don't oh my god and what for for boyfriend to come and cigarette burn it and punch it no yeah that's when a child feels pain if you're three five years old and you're having cigarette burns and being molested and being starved or tied to a bed and and neglected that's when the child feels pain but when it's a clump of cells that are part of the part of the the woman's body no bigger than a pencil eraser no there's no pain there but there is pain if it goes postpartum and it's a three, four, five, eight-year-old, ten-year-old child being slapped and punched and kicked and degraded, that's pain. Yeah. I wouldn't want that inflicted on anybody.
0: No, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from on that. Is there any uh, future plans with your art or your, and Grant? because Grant is going to be newly retired-ish, mm-hmm. kind of still doing stuff here and there, but you guys are in this age where it's almost like adventure and exploration can come up again.
1: We're, we're planning on applying to some different art festivals and going together, sharing a booth where he could have his photographs. I could have my paintings, maybe a few photographs too, but mainly paintings. Um, And I think I'm going to start writing again. I think I feel that boiling up. I just need to, try to finish some some short stories and submit them and just see what happens. Because words still come very, very easily to me. It's easier than falling off a log. Painting is hard. Like I finally did, again, thanks to Grant, I built a studio. I call it Rock Bottom Studio from the line A Pirate Looks at 40 by Jimmy Buffett, where got to stop wishing, got to stop fishing, got to go down to rock bottom again and with a few of my friends. And that's where I... I sometimes say to Grant, well, yes, the studio, it's the place where I go to fail because it's hard. You know, like you're trying to do a million micro decisions, which color, the the contrast, the co- you know, cold, cool shadows, whatever. And it's fun. It's exhilarating when it works, but it's hard. Whereas with language, uh, it just in my sleep, I mean, the words just kind of roll out as you probably have protected now
0: oh yeah fully <laughs> and I, I I like how you kind of uh talk about that because I can't relate in the painting sense because you hand me a paintbrush and you're gonna just see a disaster <laughs> you hand me a pencil and tell me to draw something you might get a stick figure but that's about it that works but photography has always been kind of my art form photography and music and it's so true what you're saying about that rock bottom, because there's, there's so many times when you'll go out and you'll do photographs or you'll sit down and write a song and it's just like, Jesus, what is it? This is not what I want. But every once in a while, as long as you don't give up, you do get that shot or you do get that painting.
1: Those are, those are moments to be as painful and, and bothersome as they are and vexing as they are. Those are to be cherished because that's when you know you're, you're gearing up, you're breaking through. And if it's bothering you, if what you're looking at on the page or on the sheet music um, or or what's coming out as you develop a photo, and it's not what you think it should be, it means you have an idea that there's something better. And you just have to keep striving. Just keep, keep, keep trying until it clicks and you you hear it. Like I know when a painting's finished, I hear it. It makes it, it tells me, it literally tells me there's a sound. And because music is on wavelengths, so are colors. The, the different angles of refraction, uh, the wavelengths of colors. So it's very, very scientific. And when there's harmony, and they mesh, and they match, and they kind of amplify each other, um, you've hit it. But you have to keep pushing through. And it, it'll tell you. It'll tell you when you've succeeded. But not to be discouraged, because those times when you're down, you want to burn, and I have burned some canvases I've burned them. And I say to myself, breakthrough, yay. You know, might not be super happy that at that moment, but in reflection, it's like, yep, I'm, I'm getting to a better place, a different place.
0: Well, there you go. I I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast, sharing your life story. It's very inspirational. I thank you. I find people who live life the way you have and still are to be like super inspiring because you are living life like an adventure and you knew the times that you weren't enjoying it, those you said, it, hamster wheel, you know, mm-hmm. and you're just doing it, but you've chose to break out of that bust habit.
1: Yep, bust a move.
0: So, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing all this with you, uh, with us. Um, everyone, can you still get your book online or
1: through Amazon? Yep. Yeah. Still on, still available. I do believe. And if not through Amazon, then the publisher Dundurn press in Toronto. Yep.
0: Right on. So go check out good as gone from Anna. I don't want to, is it portier?
1: It's, it could be Potier. It's a French name. And, uh, most of the people down home, if you're Anglophone, you'll say Pache, but, you can also pronounce it pottier. My Ontario cousins say pottier. You can say potty or you can say Potier.
0: There so we go. It works. Go check that out. She also, um, do you have an Instagram or somewhere where you I, share your paintings?
1: Yep, Instagram. It's Anna underscore Potier. And I have a website, Annapotier.com.
0: Right on. Everyone go check that out. Thank you very much for coming on again. And as I always say, be good to each other out there and be happy, humble, and humorous. And we'll catch you all on the next one. Later.